And now, a special audio presentation which asks the question, Life on Mars? By Garner Ted Armstrong. Is there life on Mars? Or did God create the universe? Did we human beings come from bacteria from Mars? Astonishing claims were made in August 1996 by astronomers who claimed to have identified a meteorite which landed in Antarctica on an ice field, nevertheless, but which had allegedly come from Mars millions of years ago, and contained in the rock, so they said, were the fossilized remains of bacteria, or as some said, evidence that bacteria had been there, meaning that they had contributed to the decay of living material of some kind, which then had been fossilized. Oh, there were many cautions. Many of the news stories said that there was no real proof. Many other scientists leapt upon it and shot holes through the theory immediately. But major news sources quickly trumpeted the story. President Clinton weighed in, pledging a renewed American effort in space. And that was good news to NASA, because they exist on your tax dollars and mine. A NASA representative began speculating about a manned trip to Mars by the turn of the century and was already talking about unmanned probes, which they hope to launch, which will bring back rock samples. Because, of course, the rock that they claim came from Mars, they don't really know came from Mars, except through subjecting the rock to certain powerful microscopes and spectrography, and looking at the spectra of various gases that are trapped, allegedly, in little air pockets within the rock, and then comparing them with some of the telemetry and the same procedures that they did merely through telecommunications from a soft landing on Mars about 20 years ago. Some major news personnel all quickly ready to leap on this idea the same way they convict people once they're indicted, even though they might be absolutely proven to be innocent later on, the news media will leap upon them, and, you know, it's judge and jury and hangman all at once because they will decide their guilt and their reputations are utterly destroyed, no matter what the outcome of the trial, and you and I both know that. Well, the same thing is true when there is anything presented at all which seems to debunk God's Word, the Bible. If anything comes along that they think will contribute to the theory of no God, or of God as a first cause, or God as a great distant force, or some strange thing or being out there who has used evolution as his creative method, then they can get rid of the concept of a personal God, a God who has the power to judge us and to punish us for our sins, a God who can deal with us on a daily basis, the God of the Bible. Now, if any of this is true, and as the major news media began to suggest with coy smiles and laughter, we're all really Martians. Well, if any of that is true, then you and I may as well as chuck our Bibles into the trash bin, because after all, the Bible says, God created the heavens and the earth. Our universe is an awesome place. All you've got to do is go out on a clear night and look up. Countless galaxies exist, vast distances from our own, consisting of hundreds of billions of stars. I've long suspected, and now science knows, that there are other planetary systems held in the gravitational field of distant stars, that there are other solar systems. Is all of this in place for a purpose? Or is our universe, our solar system, and our good, green, beautiful Earth merely an accident? And can we know why the universe exists? Why is there life on this Earth? 
For centuries, man has wondered, are we alone in the universe? Is there life on neighboring planets? For centuries, they've speculated about life on Mars. And who doesn't remember Orson Welles and the incredible national panic when he announced an invasion from Mars on a radio program decades ago? Of course, today, as the tabloids and the major media pick it up, those who believe aliens visitors, those who believe in all kinds of fantastic scenarios about UFOs and life in outer space, are very greatly excited. They are encouraged by these sensational news announcements of astronomers and the liberal media. Well, why are we humans on this Earth, a tiny speck in the vastness of space? Evolutionists have not the remotest idea. To them, we are cosmic accidents, the result of billions of years of gradual change, the descendants of amoeba. Evolutionists absolutely scoff at the Bible that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You'll find that in Genesis 1.1. They'll say, where did you get this God? They'll say, well, where did he come from? And who made God? And if you say, well, super God, they'll say, well, who made super God? And so on and on go the questions. Believers in God and the Bible, though, might ask the same questions of evolutionists, but many of them accept the so-called Big Bang Theory, which states that some primeval atom, and this is incredible when you try to think of it, of unimaginable size, suddenly exploded, hurling matter in all directions, matter which became stars, planets, moons, and comets of our universe. Of course, creationists might ask, as I do, where did you get your hydrogen atom? Where did that gigantic hydrogen atom came, uh, come from? Who made it? What caused it to explode? What is an explosion? Why does it act the way it does? Why does it hurtle out in all directions from the center of the force? What is that force? And why did it implode instead? Can the existence of God be scientifically proved? Because if it can, God reveals to us in his word, if the word that we know of as the Bible is the Word of God, and I believe you can prove it, and when you prove it, you can prove God exists, and if you prove God exists by scientific methods, which can be done, then you can prove that the Bible is His Word. You can prove that our universe, this solar system, our earth, and all humanity were deliberately planned and created for each other, and that there was a great transcendental purpose. You and I know that millions scoff and reject the whole concept of God. Evolution is no longer a theory to most of them, but proof that life has been around for millions of years, thus rending the story of Adam and Eve, pure myth. And millions more, including a lot of who go to church every week and are professing Christians, are theistic evolutionists. They think that a God of some kind used evolution as his creative process. Still others insist that the Bible is the true record of the creation of mankind and insist that there is no conflict between the Bible and true science. The question is, can you and I prove it one way or the other? And today, you know, even with television documentaries on wildlife and nature, which I love to watch, they're filled, though, with statements about evolution. As little kids sit transfixed before the TV set, watching everything from killer whales or hummingbirds or elephants, the narrator invariably will talk about how these creatures evolved into their present form. Evolution is just all through the text how evolution provides them with their techniques for survival. And very few are going to question a smooth, professional voice of a narrator on a documentary on television. Why would a little child of six or nine or eleven question something as awesome and as professionally done 
as the beautiful color pictures they see of wildlife programs on television. They're more fascinated by the animals, but in the meantime, the narrator is getting into their minds the concept of evolution. If they have no alternative, if their parents haven't taught them about God, about the glaring flaws in the theory of evolution, then millions of little children are fair game for the anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-creation forces in the media. The liberal media has branded creationists as extremists. They seem to want to portray anyone who believes in God and the Bible as some kind of a wild-eyed fanatic who might show up on the doorstep of an abortion clinic with an automatic rifle blazing. Of course, anyone who believes in Jesus Christ would never contemplate doing such a thing, would never think about violence or murder, but the modern media would paint anyone who believes in Christ with a broad brush. And the so-called Christian conservatives, according to the modern media, downright dangerous. The liberals like to label them all as being really extremists and fanatics. And evolutionists and agnostics, of course, scoff at anyone who believes in God. In their patronizing hauteur, evolutionists sneer at anyone who really believes in the divine creator God, the God of the Bible, the creator of all things, who said... In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, who said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, in John the first chapter. But the evolutionists will say, Well, you can't have something from nothing. So they say, In the beginning was the hydrogen atom, and it exploded. Well, let's apply a logic to their claim. Where did they get their hydrogen atom? How could it have come into being? How could all known matter in the universe have been contained in one great mass made only of hydrogen? When hydrogen is but one of the elements, an odorless, colorless, extremely lightweight gas that burns readily, and which, when combined with oxygen, forms water. How could this so-called supergigantic single atom have contained iron, copper, tin, molybdenum, aluminum, sulfur, iodine, phosphorus, gold, and so many more, all the minerals, all the metals, all the elements that make up matter? If in the beginning there was the hydrogen atom, which is utterly nonsensical, and since there were as yet no plants according to this concept, and since plants produce oxygen yet can't live without water, but since hydrogen must combine with oxygen to produce water, which came first, hydrogen or oxygen? And how could this single gigantic primeval atom have been somehow suspended in what we call space. What is space? Where did space come from? Where does it begin? Where does it end? Is it endless? Does your mind comprehend that, or is your mind limited? Is your reach of your arm limited? Is your lifespan limited? Are the spectra you can see and the distances you can perceive with your eyes limited? Is the audible range of frequencies and sound somewhat constricted or limited so that you can't hear all the sounds about you? If you could, you would be going crazy because you could hear hundreds of UHF, VHF, LF, MF, all kinds of police radio, ship-to-shore radio, satellite communications, code. You would be hearing frequencies that your ear does not pick up. So we are limited, and our minds are limited we express those limitations in many ways. Space is endless, but you and I cannot understand that term. 
evolutionists who will chide people who believe in the Bible for saying, in the beginning, God, will tell you, in the beginning, was the hydrogen atom. And they think their explanation makes sense. And those who say, in the beginning, God, doesn't make sense. Well, if their great atom exploded, what caused it? What agent would have caused such a gigantic universal explosion? How could simple hydrogen, the so-called building block of the universe, suddenly convert itself into the minerals and elements of the planets, billions of stars, and of course our beautiful Earth, with water and with an atmosphere and with everything in place? And why would pure hydrogen simply explode unless there was some exterior agent which caused the explosion? By what law was it an explosion instead of an implosion? They don't know. They have no answers, but they have faith. Faith in the theory of evolution. Blind faith, not based on substance or fact, and really not even based on logic, but based on an empty theory. While evolutionists sneer at religionists and creationists and regard them as uneducated dunces who cling to ancient Hebrew fireside fantasies to explain away the unexplainable, and while they view churchmen's creeds and dogmas as relics of ancient superstition, they themselves stand exposed when you read what some of them have written as the high priests of an empty dogmatic faith. These erudite teachers delve deeply into all the various disciplines of physical sciences like chemistry and biology and astronomy and geology and paleontology and comparative anatomy and nuclear physics, and they all deal, of course, with law, with design, intricacy, interdependency, symbiosis, every one of which present proofs of the existence of God. And yet the very people who study into these sciences blindly refuse to admit there had to be a great creator to explain the existence of the creation that there had to be a great lawgiver to explain the existence of immutable, inexorable law which works upon us, and we have nothing to do with the sustaining of it, the prevention of it, or the continuation of it. That there had to be a great designer who designed all the intricacy and the beauty and harmony of the universe and put these laws in place and who sustains them. That there had to be some powerful sustainer who controls all these forces. And no individual is more favorably positioned to see with his own eyes the marvelous proofs of God than a chemist or a physicist or a geologist, someone who studies into mineralogy or any other scientist, like nuclear physicists and the like, who study into the material universe. Now, I want to hasten to say that not all of them are evolutionists. Many professional scientists do believe in God. Many have written brilliantly about the proofs of God that are available in the universe and beneath our feet in the rocks of the earth and all around us, about the immutable laws that act upon us. But evolution is a lot more than pedantic science. It really is born of motive, and it really is like a faith. Listen to this admission out of a book written by William Bonner, The Mystery of the Expanding Universe, and I quote from page 119, It is the business of science to offer rational explanations for all the events in the real world, and any scientist who calls on God to explain something is falling down on his job. This is one piece of dogmatism that a scientist cannot allow himself, end of quote. But don't scientists allow themselves just a little dogma from time to time? There was a famed astronomer who had dabbled a little bit in dogma of his own, not unlike some of those in the universal church. He said, and I quote, he was Fred Hoyle. He wrote a book called Frontiers of Astronomy, page 342. He said there's an impulse to ask where originated material comes from. 
But such a question is entirely meaningless within the terms of reference of science. Why is there gravitation? Why do electrical fields exist? Why is the universe? These queries are on a par with asking where newly originated matter comes from, and they are just as meaningless and unprofitable, end of quote. Isn't that something? But why is it meaningless to wonder why? How can we say we are educated if we don't know what we are, where we came from, how it all started, where life came from, what is the origin of life on this earth? How can we be educated when we don't know what we are? Evolutionists scoff at the Bible when it says, In the beginning, God. And yet they themselves know that the universe had a beginning. They know that our solar system is composed of matter, and that matter had an origin. Now, what is matter? There are any number of scientific definitions, but really matter is anything that is an object or that occupies space and has weight, or what they say if you're dealing with something in gravitational fields of the universe rather than gravity on the earth, has mass. Even electricity can be said to be matter, and matter can be said to be energy that acts in certain ways and is in certain forms. Since all matter is subject to inertia and will resist any change in its motion, it is said to have weight because it's attracted to the gravitational pull of the earth. Matter can be liquid, solid, or gas. It can be inorganic or organic. You and I are composed of matter, of the minerals, of the elements of this earth, just like I said a little earlier, water, iron, iodine, so many other elements that make up the very cellular, molecular structure that is the living metabolic organism that is you and me. The smallest particles of matter that can be identified as having specific properties are called molecules. You'll remember that from your high school education. So a molecule of air or molecules of iron or tin or sugar can be identified because of their structures. In the case of air, because of its atoms of oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, and other rarer gases. Some molecules are composed of about three atoms. Others are so complex that they're composed of dozens of atoms. A molecule can't be seen, by the way, with the human eye, and atoms have never been seen with the human eye. They're only understood by scientific instrumentation that has to do with subatomic particles and with electricity. It's estimated that an empty milk bottle contains 27 quintillion molecules of air. If you want to write that out so you understand it, that's 27 followed by 18 zeros. That's how many molecules of air there are in an empty plastic milk bottle. A little teaspoon out of your kitchen drawer can contain 9 octillion, 940 sextillion molecules of water. That's 9 comma 940 comma followed by 21 zeros. And every one of those molecules is made up of atoms arranged in intricate, law-abiding, harmonious ways. A molecule of sugar contains atoms of hydrogen, carbon, and hydrogenesis. It would require about 100 million atoms st stacked atop each other to represent the thickness of one piece of paper one piece of your daily newspaper. Yet the atom is like a giant when it's compared to its parts. Not so many decades ago, scientists thought the atom was the smallest particle of matter, but with the growth of nuclear physics, science has learned that an atom is like a tiny universe in constant motion. 
Every atom, science knows, is composed of a tiny nucleus. And by the way, don't be overawed by scientific words, because that word merely means a nut-like something in the middle of it. Nucleus actually comes from a Latin word. Like, for example, in Spanish, the word for a nut is nueces. And nucleus merely means a nut-like thing in the middle of it. So much for the nucleus, but they call it the nucleus, and people can't pronounce that. Some a former president couldn't pronounce it. Uh, he, nuclear. Nuclear is what Jimmy Carter always called nuclear. He couldn't say nuclear energy or nuclear bomb. It was a tongue twister for him. And to this day, I've seen that some people, uh, major radio announcers and newscasters on television, will say nuclear. Even politicians, nuclear bomb. There's no such thing as a nuclear bomb. It's nuclear because it comes from the word nucleus. Anyway, enough of that. The nucleus within an atom is so tiny, it would be like a gnat flying around within a large building if the building represents the walls of the atom where the electrons and the various subatomic particles are whizzing about. And still, that nucleus inside that big building contains 99.9% of all of the matter that is inside an atom. Who produced all of that? Who created that? Who set those laws in motion? Who designed it that way? Who sustains it? Outside the nucleus, but contained within the atom, are infinitesimally small electrical particles whizzing around in an area that is said to be 50,000 times the size of the nucleus. An atom is incredibly complex. It is organized. Atoms are like bundles of organized energy that are made up into matter. Scientists consider the nuclei of atoms to be made up of even smaller subatomic particles. One of the larger subatomic particles, the proton, is so small it would require 2.5 trillion of them side by side to measure one inch. Now, when you consider the microcosm as well as the macrocosm, the universe is the macrocosm and all of space, and the microcosm is the atom and subatomic particles. When you consider it all, you just look at all of these laws, the intricacy, the interdependency, the harmony, the beauty, and it should absolutely make us just awestruck, awestricken with the incredible powers of God. No model like some kind of a sketch or some kind of a physical model made up of plastic or wooden blocks or artist sketch could adequately depict atomic structure. Up to 30 years ago, scientists had classified about 34 subatomic particles they claim were observed on various photographic plates and in cloud chambers, but nuclear physicists have admitted there is no consensus among themselves about atomic particles. A man named Walter Houston in a book called Frontiers of Nuclear Physics said this, In practice, the physicist uses whichever view of what elements make up atomic particles, the basic structure of matter, that suits his calculations. In many respects, the physics of elementary particles today, he said, is at a very real crossroads. It'll be fun, he wrote, to watch men struggle to adjust observation to theory to find the new observations that help build a more adequate model. He concluded by saying, curiously, although many people call physics an exact science, there is more confusion than certainty in the nuclear particle field today. So much for erudition and science. With the advent of nuclear physics, men learned how to split atoms, how to fission the nuclei of atoms, which causes an explosion of mind-boggling proportions. Where does the energy come from? Who put it there? How can matter explode? Well, it does. The nucleus of an atom makes up 99.95% of its mass. 
That's what physicist Fritz, Fritz Kahn, whom I interviewed one time, and he said, in contrast to its small size, the nucleus is incredibly heavy. If a drop of dew were made entirely of nuclear mass, it would be 130 trillion times heavier than it is now. Because today, a, do- a drop of dew is, of course, composed of all of those millions of molecules of water. A solid lump of the nuclei, though, the size of a lump of sugar, would weigh 24 billion kilograms, or 26 million tons. Let me repeat that, because that's if you could take the nuclei, the nucleus, the nuclei is plural for it, and you could take the nuclei of that drop of dew, it would weigh 26 million tons. That is the equivalent of 500 battleships of 52 tons apiece. Does that boggle your mind? It ought to, because that's matter for you. That's the basic building block of this universe. Now, as mentioned, the atom is like a tiny universe itself. It's vast in the relative size of the nucleus and the distances between it and the various subatomic particles that are whizzing around at incredible speeds. The same Soros Khan said, despite the vastness of the atom, it is extremely difficult to press one atom against another or to compress the orbits of the electrons. Electrons revolve six times ten to the fifteenth power times per second, that is six quintillion times per second around the nucleus. Makes you wonder how they can detect that, doesn't it? A system with such a quotient for rotation is harder than steel, no matter how small the mass or how great the distances. An atom behaves like a propeller, which makes a million revolutions a second. That's incredible, isn't it? What is nuclear energy? Let Kahn answer. He said, since the protons are all equally charged, they strongly repel each other. If the 26 protons inside the nucleus of the iron atom were liberated from their bonds, they would fly apart with a pressure of 7 times 10 to the 15th power atmospheres. And an atmosphere is the average air pressure at sea level, or about 15 pounds per square inch. The released energy corresponds to a temperature of more than 100 million degrees. Vehemence of action and million-degree heat are the nuclear energy we gain by fissioning the nuclei of atoms, or, as is generally expressed, nuclear reactions. Now, you know, energy had to come from somewhere. No physicist seriously believes that the yellow dwarf star that is our sun somehow invested the Earth with all this stored energy. Kahn said it, and I quote, since energy is liberated from an atom, nucleus, it is actually only liberated when that nucleus is split, and energy must have been invested in the nucleus. The energy had to come from somewhere. We do not know how nuclei originated, he admitted. To combine 26 positively charged protons into a unit requires an energy of billions of degrees of heat, and a pressure of more than 7 times 10 to the 18th power atmospheres. And he said, even in its fieriest days, the earth could never have furnished such power, and the sun could never have endowed the earth with such power. Do you hear what he's saying? The energy, the power contained in the atom, in atomic structure on this earth, could never have come from our sun. Such is the power and the energy stored in matter that just one ounce of matter contains energy 
equivalent to 625,000 tons of TNT. You and I are composed of matter. All the physical universe is composed of matter. And one thing is sure, the more science discovers about matter, the more technically intricate is the information available to nuclear physicists, then the more law-abiding, the more predictable they find our Earth and all matter to be. For them or anyone else to deny that all this intricacy, this interdependency, this harmony, this structure, this complexity, had a maker, a designer, would be like walking into a 40-room home with a huge library filled with rare books, several fireplaces with the hearths already alight, an indoor swimming pool, a vast kitchen with food on the stove, and claim the home didn't have an architect, it didn't have a builder, the books had no author or publisher, and everything in the house and the house itself are the result of blind chance. Now, all matter, and that's the rocks that you can see under your feet out on the land, trees, water, grass, air, our own physical bodies are composed, therefore, of energy arranged in complex forms. When a nuclear explosion occurs, a small amount of matter has been released as a very large amount of energy. But nothing has been lost, because matter can be changed, but it can't be lost. Now, the original matter has been converted into energy in an explosion, but since no new matter is being created... It's got to be obvious to any thinking person, as it is even to scientists, scientists, if they would just admit it, that matter had a beginning. Our physical universe is gradually running down. That's proved certainly one of the easiest ways to prove it is from the laws that act upon radioactive elements, that U-238 or uranium is gradually losing its radioactivity until over vast periods of time, called a period of half-life, it eventually becomes PB-206 or lead, which is inert. Science doesn't know how matter, and therefore the universe and the solar system, could have originated except by having some kind of a creation, a beginning, a starting place. And where they start, they start always with the universe there. They start either with a primal, primeval atom, as I said, which created the universe or the universe itself, but they start with laws. And they start with energy and complexity and interdependency, and they start with all these laws that work upon us. Science can't explain how elements of high atomic weight, including uranium, or thorium, are constantly giving off radiation until they're changed into radium, lead, or polonium, which are lighter elements. They can't explain it. What is known is that matter is gradually losing energy and that our sun and other stars are giving off radiation into space. 99.999% of all the energy of the sun is lost into the vastness of space. Only a tiny little fraction of it ever hits the earth. And yet all of the energy that we consume, including stored energy in the form of fossils in the rocks, have come from the sun. James Jean wrote in his book, Eos, or the Wider Aspects of Cosmogony, or Cosmogony, the universe is like a clock which is running down, a clock which, so far as science knows, no one ever winds up, which cannot wind itself up, and so must stop in time. It is at present a partially wound-up clock, which must at some time in the past have been wound up in some manner unknown to us. So obviously all matter had a beginning. When they discovered radium, and with the rapid progression of scientific knowledge in nuclear physics, it has become known that at some time in the past, matter simply didn't exist. Well, then where did the energy that really is matter come from? Since all matter is made up of atoms, and every atom is like a tiny universe with electrical particles whizzing about inside of it, 
yet at a vast distance from the nucleus, where did these perfectly arranged, law-abiding electrical particles come from? Where did that nucleus come from? Where did the atom come from? One of the properties of matter, if you remember from your high school science classes, is its solubility. Can it be dissolved into another kind of matter, like sugar into water? Another property is its density or specific gravity. Obviously, cork floats, while iron, more dense, sinks. Another property of matter is whether it exists in gaseous form or liquid form or solid form. Dozens, myriad laws act upon matter. They're inexorable. They are immutable. Man can't change them, and they are like living laws. Matter can be changed from one form to another. You can burn sugar in a pan, put heat to it, and it will turn into a little pile of black ash, which is pure carbon. It can be changed from one form to another. Water can be frozen into a solid, as you know, in your ice tray, or evaporated into the air, as you know, if you want to boil it. And science did not invent those laws. Scientists over hundreds of years have discovered laws which are utterly dependable, which act the same every time, but they didn't invent them. Atomic structure, nuclear physics, laws concerning the conservation of energy demonstrate to us that there has been no past eternity of matter. Matter, which is really energy arranged and compacted together in various forms, had a definite beginning in the past, and that demands the creation, the existence of a great creator who produced the creation. Now, science recognizes two absolute laws called the two laws of thermodynamics, which act upon all matter. And the first is the law of the conservation of energy. And that states that while energy can be changed from one form to another, nothing is lost. Nothing is created or destroyed. And the second law states that while the total amount is unchanged, there's always a tendency for it to become less available for useful work or entropy. P.W. Bridgman, in an article, Reflections on Thermodynamics in the American Scientist, wrote, and I quote, The two laws of thermodynamics are accepted by physicists as perhaps the most secure generalizations from experience that we have. The physicist does not hesitate to apply the two laws to any concrete physical situation in the confidence that nature will not let him down. All geological and biological processes are governed by those two laws. You are, I am, everything about you is, every scientific laboratory is, every space shot is, everything that we see about us. All of our modern technology, and I don't care whether you're talking about a farmer in a field behind a mule or you're talking about a space shot headed around the moon. They're governed by laws. In no case is any new energy being created. And yet during the remote past, at the original creation of the earth, and again at the time of Adam, matter and energy were being created and produced. God designed, then he produced flawless order, harmony, intricacy, interdependency, such as symbiosis, which came first, the chicken or the egg, which came first, the larva or the fly, which came first, your human digestive system or the bacteria that help you digest your food, which came first, these beautiful little fungi, which is actually not just one fungus, but actually an alga and a fungus, two of them living in perfect symbiotic harmony. And why? Why do these laws act upon us the way they do? Laws that govern all science, laws that are like living forces that are sustained each and every day. 
Now, one of the greatest laws, one that you deal with every day, you're dealing with it right now, every time you get up and you say, oh, I'm tired, or it's hard to get out of bed, every time you drop something and you housewives maybe break a dish or a glass, you're dealing with gravity. Right now, while you're listening to this, whether you're in your automobile at home, your gravity's acting upon you. Your furniture, your every possession, your car, your own body. At this instant, it's being held in the gentle grasp of gravity. Pick up any object near at hand and drop it. Don't if it's precious to you, but it's gravity that pulls it down. But we almost never think about it. We take it for granted. Well, what is it? Well, it's the gentlest force that we can know of, and science has called it gravity. But science didn't invent it. The earth is gently held in the gravitational field of our sun, making an annual trip around the sun at precisely the perfect distance from the sun. Closer, and temperatures on the earth would be so hot, all green things would burn up, water would boil and evaporate, and no life could survive. Further away, all the water of the earth would freeze, and no life could be sustained. Is it merely blind chance, just a lucky, fortuitous accident, that our earth is held in the powerful, gentle, gravitational field of our sun? The moon is in turn held in the gentle gravitational embrace of the earth. The moon's gravity, which is weaker than that of the earth, nevertheless powerfully affects the tides and ocean currents and therefore life on earth and the weather patterns. And also the weather patterns on earth are a result of the tilting of the earth on its annual journey. We all know when the northern latitudes are tilted away from the sun, the sun rays are required to travel greater distances and that results in winter. We know when it tilts back the other way that the rays are shorter and summer has arrived. It's like an incredibly complex machine, like a living thing. The earth with its moon continually orbiting around the sun, the moon orbiting around the earth, sustaining life on this earth. And every single day, even though you're unaware of it, when you awaken, if you slept about eight hours, you've traveled approximately 8,000 miles. At an approximate 1,000 miles per hour at the equator, if you slept about eight hours, you're 8,000 miles distant relative to the moon and the sun, of course, than you were when you went to sleep. When you arise, you immediately feel the gentle effects of gravity. How many times do we feel our knees and our, our backs and so on aching and giving us pain when people say, I was so tired I couldn't, I could hardly get out of bed this morning. This feeling of resistance, the feeling of having to lift yourself up against some gentle but constant force is gravity. If you want to have a humorous a little bit of fun with gravity, go to your mirror, cock your head completely to the side and try to put it right on one of your shoulders and then look at your face. Your cheeks and your nose are going to tend to sag toward the floor. And you'll say, I didn't know my nose would do that. But they will, because you're normally not going to look at yourself like that. You're accustomed to seeing gravity pull upon the fleshy parts of your face straight down. You're not accustomed to laying your head on your shoulder and studying your face in the mirror. When you walk, you're feeling the resistance of gravity. When you drive in your car, or you run, or lift objects, or fly in an airplane, or play around a golf and watch the ball come back down in an arc, or cast a fishing plug and watch it fall, or throw a baseball, or accidentally drop and break something, you're seeing the effects of gravity. And most of us live our lives completely oblivious to the powerful laws and forces that work upon us. We talk about sunset, we should say earth roll, because the earth is slowly rolling in a generally easterly direction relative to the sun. When the sun disappears over our westerly horizon, we say the sunset, when in fact it did nothing of the kind, it's remained stationary, and the earth has rolled away from it. We speak in many terms that are incorrect and indicate really our tendency, to, even though we know better, to think like we lived on a flat earth. We talk about up, which should be out, or away, or down, 
we, we talk about down which should be within or through. Most of us are unconscious of the fact that 8,000 miles straight through from us, the mantle and the core of the earth from us, are countless millions of humans who are held by gravity's gentle force, and they're upside down to us, and they think they're on the top of the world. They think they're right side up, and we know better. We are. But really, we all are, aren't we? It's just that we don't think about gravity. No scientist can explain the how and the why of gravity. It's a term used to describe the pull of Earth's gravity on objects on Earth, while gravitation is the term used to describe how the entire universe is held together. And gravitation is a powerful force or an action being exerted across millions of miles of empty space. There aren't any strands or ropes or hooks or lines that are sunk into the Earth or these big, beautiful stars out there to keep them at precisely the perfect distance from each other, or our Earth at precisely the right distance from the sun so life can survive. What is that powerful, yet gentle, velvety force of which we are most days completely unaware. Science doesn't know. Attempts have been made to define and explain it, but they hadn't invented it. They don't know why it is. They don't know what causes it to act in such a predictable, law-abiding way. They simply don't know. Now, any reasonably educated person remembers that Sir Isaac Newton stated there was a universal law of gravitation back in 1687. He said all objects attract each other and the force of their attraction depends on the masses of the objects and on the distance between them. The attraction increases in proportion to the masses of their bodies. The greater the masses, the greater the force. He discovered that the weight of bodies on the earth would be completely different if they were on the moon or another planet, and that's been demonstrated because men have been there. His law referred to mass instead of weight because the weight of a body on earth is the particular strength of earth's gravity on that body. And even though having identical mass, the weight of the same body would be different on a different planet. You and I weigh six times as much here on Earth as we would if we were on the moon. Some of us would like to go there, shed all that weight. Newton did not know the cause of gravitation, nor did Albert Einstein with his theory of relativity and curved space. A professor at the University of California named E.P. Lewis said, and I quote, We do not know, nor can we ever expect to know, the mechanism of gravitation. End of quote. But you see, instead of seeing the hand of a divine being who created and who sustains these powerful laws and forces, evolutionists create buffers in their minds and simply ignore causal factors. No evolutionist begins at the true beginning of all things, because if he did, he would have to admit the existence of a creator God and the sustaining of God's immutable laws by divine fiat. And a fiat, by the way, is not an Italian car. It means an authoritative order or command. If gravity were to suddenly be suspended, even for an instant, then all of us would go flying out into space. All the seas would empty. The universe would come apart. Stars and planets would wander about in a chaotic manner. All the seas would empty and wobble about in billions of droplets, and total chaos would reign, and everybody would die. So the continual action of gravity, the daily sustaining of these forces is proof that God is not an absentee landlord, but a living creator who continually upholds all things by the word of his power. It says that in Hebrews 1, verse 3, who upholds all things by the word of his power. If you want to do an in-depth study sometime, you'd really have a ball, I think, going to any college-grade level encyclopedia-like world book and look up gravity. Along the way, you would encounter other articles. You could read about laws governing falling bodies and things like ballistics that is interesting, and things like attraction and force and relativity and torsion, balance and weight and pendulum. 
that anyone who believes in God and knows God exists, gravitation and the travel of light and radio waves through the universe presents no problem, because the believer knows that God created these wondrous powers and forces, and that he continues to uphold them. To one who rejects the knowledge of God, all of these miraculous laws of nature present a fathomless mystery, the conundrum of all time. Now, why are all these laws in existence, and why do they act on matter the way they do? Is there a purpose for creation? Is there a purpose for human life? Before we get to the real purpose for the creation of humankind, I want to tell you that I have in front of me the manuscript of a major booklet that goes all the way to back, back to the pre-Adamic creation, to the period of the dinosaurs, to how the earth was formed, to the life that Lucifer and his angels had on this earth, to the original Star Wars and a rebellion of Lucifer who became Satan the devil, to the original great floods, of which there may have been many, proofs that there was an indeterminate period of time that could have lasted up to four and one-half billion years before the recreation of the earth that we see revealed in Genesis 1, proofs of the Noatian deluge, information about rhinoceroses, mastodons, and mammoths, up in Siberia, where there was an ivory trade all the way up into the 20s and 30s, and it continues sporadically to this day. The jumbled remains of animals that absolutely demonstrate the Noatian deluge, or the global flood, the worldwide flood, at the time of Noah. I simply will not have time, even if I were to talk for another two hours on this tape, to give you all that information. But when that booklet is prepared, and we're working on it now, we will send you a letter and announce its availability, and then you will have it for your own home study. Mankind was placed on this earth by Almighty God, and there is irrefutable proof that that is so. This earth was prepared for man for perhaps billions of years. It teemed with life, and Lucifer and his angels were the caretakers of an original beautiful creation. When Lucifer rebelled, a titanic struggle ensued that wrecked the earth and so far as we can probe with scientific instruments, the solar system and our own galactic neighborhood for countless years. And you will see that proved in that booklet when it's announced and when it's ready. The earth lay desolate under water, covered with a thick mantle of clouds, with no light penetrating to its watery surface, as God reveals in the first chapter of Genesis. Finally, the time had come. God had created all of this for a great purpose. God would now create man in the very image of God. He would place his great prototype in the midst of a beautiful, bountiful, perfect garden in the autumn of the year, just when every kind of food would be plentifully available. The Bible says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, in Genesis, the first chapter, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. Notice that. Replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. That's Genesis 1, 26 and 28. And believe it or not, the member of the Godhead who did the creating who said, Let us make man in our image, was the member of the divine sovereign Godhead we know of as Elohim, 
who was to become Jesus Christ of Nazareth, born of the Virgin Mary. In a little while, I'm going to show you that proof, but it's in your Bible in the first chapter of the book of John, the Gospel of John in the first chapter of Hebrews. And all you've got to do is to read it with no one there to tell you it doesn't mean what it says. We're given a little glimpse of how Elohim, called the Logos, or divine spokesman of the Godhead, created Adam and Eve in the next chapter, in Genesis, the second chapter. It says, The eternal God formed man of the dust of the ground, that means the clay and dirt, the elements of this earth, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. The Hebrew word is nephesh, that means a living creature. And there's a great deal in the booklet about that as well, as you can have also our free brochure on Do You Have an Immortal Soul? It shows you the many, many places in the Bible where the word nephesh can mean anything from a dead body, an animal, a creature of any kind, from a clam to a lobster to an elephant. It is even rendered he, she, it, they, them, sometimes, that thing, that one, and in many other ways, and it's all there laid out for you. It's used actually about five or six times of lower life forms in the first chapter of the book of Genesis that it's ever used of man. Then finally, when it's used of man, it's already been used several times prior to that time in Genesis, the first chapter, and translated creature. It means man became a living creature. Yes, there is a spirit in man. We'll get to that in a moment. There is a human spirit, but we do not have an immortal soul. There is something spiritual in us and about our brain or our mind, but it's not what you think. Now, think back to what we were talking about when we discussed the atom and subatomic particles and matter and what it is and how it acts. We know that you and I are composed of matter, and that our fleshly bodies consist of the elements of this earth, that they must be sustained by eating the things that come from the ground or the sea or the, the lakes and rivers. We've got to eat meat and fruits and vegetables and fish and grain. We literally are what we eat. Our bodies digest and assimilate the vitamins and minerals contained in everything from beef to radishes, and from salmon to perhaps uh, bass or some other kind of fish. But mostly, we consist of water. When we die, we return to the ground from whence we came. Our bodies decompose and quite literally return to the soil. Now, it's horrible to contemplate, but human bodies are sometimes instantly blasted or torn into tiny little fragments, like that sudden horrible crash of a jet airplane in a murky swamp down there in Florida, or the thunderous explosion of a bomb. The mighty Elohim, like a master potter, formed and shaped Adam out of red mud. That's what the word Adam actually means, red mud. Red mud of this earth. God thought out, designed, and then executed his plan for making man in the very image of God. Then he placed within mankind a mind. Not just brain, like animals have, with instinct, but a mind. A mind that is capable of rational thought. A mind that is capable of thought of thinking, of reasoning, of having a vision or concept or an idea about something that it will affect or create, which has put within mind limited creative abilities. Look at our incredibly complex technology in which we live. And also has given us a psyche, has given us emotion, has given us a conscience, has given us the ability to think introspectively and to ask introspectively and to ask, what are we and why are we here? God placed within our minds a human spirit, which many people call the soul, but they don't understand that. You ought to get that free copy of our booklet on Do You Have an Immortal Soul? 
The English word soul comes from that Hebrew word nephesh, and it means creature and many other things. Actually, it's used, as I said, of lower life forms several times. If you look at Bullinger's Companion Bible in Appendix 13, you'll see a great deal on that. We have a mind, and that includes a human spirit. Maybe it came into the brain of Adam at the very moment God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, whenever or however that occurs, and it's not necessary for us to understand that in order to be saved. God's Word does say that we have a human spirit. Let me give you a few proofs. Job 32.8, But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. As if anticipating Christ's words when he died on the stake, David wrote in Psalm 31.5, Into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. David wrote in Psalm 77, 3-6, I complained, and my spirit was overwhelmed. I commune with mine own heart, and my spirit made diligent search. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 20 and verse 27, The spirit of man is the candle of the eternal, searching all the inward parts of the belly. In other words, our conscience searches deeply into what we call our heart, but Solomon called it the spirit of man. Paul wrote, Romans 1 and verse 9, For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. And then Paul also said in Romans 8 and verses 16 and 17, how the Holy Spirit combines with the Spirit of God to produce a new creature in Christ, a new man that is called the child of God, new man or new woman, a new creature, a new being. He said, and I quote, The Spirit itself, that is God's Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit, that is our human spirit in our minds, that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. He urged the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you'll read that, For you are bought with a price, therefore, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17, spoke of that new creature that is produced when God's Holy Spirit begets every human spirit. Now, we're dealing now with why we are here. Why did God say, let us make man in our image and after our likeness? The Holy Spirit creates a new child of God within every human prototype when we repent and are baptized and receive God's Holy Spirit. Paul wrote, and I quote, Wherefore, henceforth we know no man after the flesh, that is, carnally. And most of us are always thinking that way when we're being picky and we're being accusative and when we judge and condemn and we gossip and we slander and when we talk about our brother and sister and when we impute motives to other people. Paul said, Henceforth we know no man after the flesh or according to the flesh or carnally. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh... They knew him as a physical human being, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. When you and I were begotten in the wombs of our mothers... It required the life-giving begettal of our fathers together with the fertile egg of our mothers. At the instant of conception, you then became a new, distinct, unique, never-before, never-to-be-again human being. 
absolutely one of a kind, unique. You did not begin your existence at birth. You began your existence at the instant of conception. And when we are begotten of God, we begin at that moment a new existence in Christ. We are a newly conceived, from that time on, growing, developing, spiritual creature who will ultimately be born of God either by a resurrection or by an instantaneous change. And you can get a copy of my booklet entitled, Why You Were Born, that goes very deeply through the entire process and the meaning and the purpose of human life. Now, it says we're to be co-heirs with Christ. What did Christ inherit? He was resurrected and he was changed from his human physical body back to a divine spiritual body. He became literally spirit. That big stone was not rolled back to let Jesus Christ out of his tomb. It was rolled away to let the world look in. The Spirit itself bears witness, it says in Romans 8, 16 and 17, with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children then heirs, we just read it, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. What has Christ inherited? Well, everything. He told his disciples, Matthew 28, 18, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Jesus Christ is presently seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He is alive. He is spirit. He inhabits eternity. Sin cannot touch him. Satan the devil is fearful of him and cannot touch him. He will live forever and ever and ever in great glorious splendor. And your Bible says we are heirs of God and joint heirs together with Christ. Can we believe God's truth? Can, can our minds even comprehend it? Can we accept God's word? If we can, listen to what John wrote in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter, and there is so much there, word by word, verse by verse. Let's look at a little of it. He says, and I quote, There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. Howbeit, he says, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. And remember that Jesus told Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. You and I were born of a fleshly mother. And we are material, we are flesh, as is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. That's what the Bible says. But listen to this, and see if you can admit it and understand it and rejoice in it. As is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. What is God? He's heavenly. What is Jesus Christ? Heavenly. When you're born of God, what will you be? Like them. You know, I've, I've never been comfortable with a statement, that we will be God as God is God. I, I don't like that, because God will always be the Father. He will always be supreme. He will always be the divine sovereign. He will always be the head of the family. We can never attain to the stature of God, nor the stature of Jesus Christ, except as a younger brother or sister, but not even close to his stature. But we are to become members of the family, members of the divine Elohim. It says, and I quote, As we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. I look a lot like my dad. I bear the image of Herbert W. Armstrong, because he begot me together with my mother, and I am born of them. 
And so I am an Armstrong, and I can't help that. That just happens to be who and what I am, because they produced me and they made me, and I bear their image. Now, when you are born of God, what will you be? When you're born of Theos, and that's the Greek word that we see rendered in English, God, in the New Testament, or it is the word Elohim rendered God in the Old Testament. The Bible makes it very explicit. Notice what it says. Now this I say, brethren, 1 Corinthians 15, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that means die, to become utterly oblivious in death, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, quicker than the batting of an eyelash, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Read 1 Corinthians 15, all the way from verse Oh, in the 20s, but I've got a quotation there from verses 44 to 52. God envisioned this earth as an habitation for his masterpiece of all time, mankind, for millions, perhaps billions of years. The divine sovereign family we know of as Elohim in the Bible was preparing this world as man's future home. And when you get this lengthy booklet I have written, you're going to see all about oil and where it came from and coal, and how it was put deep within the earth, about the floods that must have been, perhaps many of them, long before the time of Adam, about pre-Adamic life, and the age of the dinosaurs, about the rebellion of Satan the devil, and the wreckage of this earth. You're going to see about the creation of man, and then the Noatian deluge, and the absolute proofs from sources all over the world, from the rocks themselves, from paleontology and geology, about the Noatian deluge. For perhaps billions of years, the divine sovereign family of Elohim, and the one we know of as the Logos, or the spokesman, who became Jesus Christ, a member of that family, was preparing this world as man's future home. Just as all life reproduces after its own kind, like maple trees shed little maple seeds, which become maple trees, and just as dolphins give birth to dolphins, and just like human beings reproduce human babies made in the image of their parents, so God is recreating, God is reproducing after His kind. This vast universe, our solar system, this marvelous earth and all life upon it, molecular structure, the atom and subatomic particles, Matter, which is energy, compacted together in law-abiding forms, are not just there by accident. There was a purpose for its creation, just as there is a purpose for the sustaining of all laws that protect life upon this earth. Notice that if we are in Christ, we are a new creature, as the Apostle Paul wrote, and that God's master plan for reproducing after his own kind requires the building of spiritual character it requires repentance of sins. Jesus Christ is our daily high priest. All of us are going to slip and stumble. We're going to slide back, as some people say. We're going to struggle because life is a series of plunging ups and downs. It's not all upward. It is a series of ups and downs. But we just don't want to be taking one step forward and two steps back. If we take two steps forward and one step back, then little by little by little we're progressing in the right direction. And God's plan requires repentance of sins 
And it requires daily repentance when we get in wrong attitudes and say and do wrong things and we slip up and make mistakes. Water baptism symbolizes the death and the burial of the old sinful creature coming up out of the water, which symbolizes the resurrection of the newly justified creature, now with a complete blank record, no sins on the balance ledger there, nothing to our account, our lives as pure as the driven snow. Now within days or hours, the newly repentant sinner who has been forgiven of all of his past sins is going to make a mistake. That's why Jesus Christ is our daily high priest sitting at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us when we go to him with God's Holy Spirit in our minds, with our human spirit, and as his children call him Father, Abba, Father, and ask for his forgiveness. The awesome truth about our human potential is known and understood by only a precious few. Millions believe God has created some kind of a soul factory down here below, that souls go wafting up to heaven or straight into an ever-burning hell when the human body dies, and few understand why our solar system shows evidence of a titanic struggle, why there is such junk and debris in space, why the world was empty, chaotic, vain, and waste when God began his recreative work at the time that he created man on this earth. Satan is called the deceiver of all nations, and he's truly done it either with his false religions or with his false science, the theory of evolution, which utterly rejects the existence of God. Millions of people with alacrity and great bubbling joy accept the latest pronouncements of science about there might be germs or bacteria in a rock on Mars, because Satan has prepared the minds of the world to want to reject God and to reject God's laws, to reject his way of life, to reject his Ten Commandments. Satan wrecked the solar system and the earth. God recreated it, made it a beautiful place for man. He created man and placed him in the middle of the garden. Satan then dece deceived Eve, who urged her husband to join with him in committing the first sin. They stole, they lusted and coveted, they broke the instruction of their own parent, their only parent, thus they really rebelled against him. They broke several of the ten points of the first commandment. And in committing that first sin, they created wretched conditions of the human family that had prevailed ever since and lived to see their own two sons, even though God Almighty spoke directly to Cain and said, Why is your countenance fallen? Why are you in a rotten attitude? Why have you got such a long face? Why are you in a bad mood? If you do well, fine, I'll accept you. If you do wrong, sin lies at the door. And it wasn't just a little while after that that instead of having God Almighty tell him that he was in a bitter attitude, Cain murdered his brother out of jealousy. And so there was fratricide. There was a terrible, bloody murder in the very first family out of nothing more than simple jealousy. And, you know, sometimes I feel like I fail because I preach many powerful sermons and give many Bible studies and lectures, and I write and write and just beg and urge people about their attitudes I preach, why do you not rather take the wrong? Turn the other cheek. Love even your enemies. And if we're to love our enemies, why shouldn't we love those with whom we work and the closest people around us every single day and forgive them and to be long-suffering? But you know, if I fail, and if people, even shortly after hearing me preach a powerful sermon, practically begging people to love one another and forgive one another, 
and then I find out that they're still hateful and angry and vindictive. I guess I shouldn't feel so bad, because after all, it was God Almighty, the one that we know of as Jesus Christ, the divine Elohim, who walked and talked with the first family, who appeared personally and talked to Cain. And it was only a matter of hours later after that talk that Cain murdered his brother. Satan was present at the birth of Jesus Christ, trying to destroy him through Herod's vicious pogrom against all male children from two years of age. And then following Christ's baptism, Satan tried to tempt Christ to sin by a lot of subtle means right during the entire time when Jesus Christ was fasting for forty days and forty nights. Christ met that supreme struggle for the mastery, ultimately gave Satan a command, Get thee hence, which Satan had to obey. Then Satan entered personally into Judas Iscariot, bringing about the merciless beating and the death of Jesus. But God's plan had been carried out. Every time Satan the devil has tried to thwart God's plan, whether it was the wreckage of the earth and the universe in the, origi in the original Star Wars, it resulted in the burial of fossil fuels for the future of man. Every time Satan has tried to interfere in God's plan, it has actually fallen out to the good so that God's plan would go along exactly as God intended, and God's plan is being carried out. Satan, when he entered directly into Judas Iscariot, had unwittingly become complicit in the death of Christ, which God allowed to occur, so Christ could take upon himself the sins of all of mankind. And Judas betrayed him, because Satan the devil entered personally into him. You know, for a deeper understanding of what a wondrous and an awesome sacrifice that really was, and to really be moved by what your Savior and mine has done for us, you need to call or write immediately for your free copy of that sermon tape, Christ's Lonely Sacrifice. Many of you have heard it. I delivered it at a Feast of Tabernacles some years ago. But I believe it will really inspire you, and it will show you that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was a sacrifice during his entire lifetime. When you imagine that God the Father sent his own Son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, to die for his own creation, to become a perfect sacrifice for sin, how his one life is worth more than all other human life put together, it is an awesome thing to understand, because after all, Jesus Christ is the member of the divine sovereign Elohim in heaven who did the creating. God says, over in John's Gospel, the first chapter, in the beginning was the Word, that's Logos in the Greek, meaning spokesman, and the Word was with God, that means Logos was with Theos, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That tells you plainly the one that we know of as Jesus Christ was the one who did the creating. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. It can't be any plainer than that. It can't be. The world was made by him. It says he came unto his own. Of course, that's the Jewish people of Palestine of his era. And his own received him not. But as many as received him, that includes you and me, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And it says a little later, And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John, the first chapter, verses 1 to 14. And that absolutely proves beyond the shadow of a doubt 
that the one who became Jesus Christ of the flesh was that divine being who created the universe, our solar system, this earth, every living creature, who created molecular structure, who created the atom and subatomic particles, who is behind every bit of power and force and energy and law that you and I can know. How great was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who died for his own creation, which is the work of his own hands. When we repent of sin, and we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, God promises to impart to us His Holy Spirit, which makes us His child, a child of God, a new creature in Christ. Now, even though we still live in a fleshly body, with all of our aches and pains and all of our heartaches and our troubles, and though we still must sustain our lives by food and drink, there is a new creature in Christ that is growing and developing within us. In combination is the Holy Spirit of God and our human spirit. God's great master plan is to reproduce after His own kind. You've already read it. You've heard me say it at least twice, and it's in Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. If you and your uncle or your brother or sister, some near relative or friend, jointly inherited a fortune, how much do you get? Fifty percent, an equal share. You know that. If you are a joint heir, it is a, it's a statement of equality, of equal possession, of equal inheritance. Being glorified together, as it says in Romans 8.17, is not merely an expression of human joy or euphoria or happiness. It doesn't mean ecstatic feelings, like people in a session of praise worship or something. That, that's not glorified or, or glorious. No, it means exactly what it says. Just as you read in the famous resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, that we shall be changed from flesh to spirit, from corruptible to incorruptible, from human to divine, and that is the meaning of finally being born of God. There are millions of people who are church-going nominal Christians who believe vaguely in the idea of God. They say that they believe in Jesus Christ, but they don't know that creation was only begun in the Garden of Eden and that God was creating mankind for a great and breathtaking purpose. Jesus explained that purpose actually to Nicodemus. Let's let him answer. He says, Verily I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And we've got a full booklet on that subject. Born again or born from above. You ought to write for it or call for it. Call 903-825-2525 and get it. Many will think that born again is a religious experience. And perhaps they'll wonder, well, what has that got to do with the purpose for human existence and the universe and the solar system and all life upon this earth? But no, Jesus was not describing a religious experience. He was describing the most awe-inspiring, breathtaking truth you could ever imagine. Nicodemus had never heard an expression like that before, and so far as we know, that's the first time in all of history it was ever uttered. You must be born again. But today, that expression is so common, you hear it almost every day. Every Sunday, in thousands of churches, on television, in newspapers, and in religious booklets and magazines and tracts about born again, born again, born again. People say, I've been born again. I was born again. 
Well, they don't understand, and Jesus did explain it to Nicodemus, and all they've got to do is to read it the way it is, the way they would read a newspaper article, and understand. Otherwise, you can't explain why Nicodemus asked him, how can a man be born when he is old? Look at verse 4 of John, of the third chapter. Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus had heard Jesus Christ speak in Aramaic. Nicodemus was an educated man. He was a leader of the Jewish community, it says so, the religious community in John 3.1. He would have clearly understood the word Jesus used, which was eventually written in Greek and then in English. The Greek word is gnao, which is always used for the process of begettal and birth. It's the same word that we would use to describe the process of birth for dogs, cows, or horses. And by itself, the word gnao has no spiritual connotation. Now, as you'll learn, if you write or call for the booklet that I've mentioned, and then study that booklet about born again or born from above, and also the one I mentioned about why you were born, you will come to understand the real meaning of what Jesus Christ said. And you'll understand it very much more technically than I have time to do in my remaining time on this uh, lecture tape. If a choir director interrupts his group of singers and says, all right, let's do it over again now, folks. Let's, let's take it from the top. Everybody knows exactly what he means. The English expressions, anew, again, over again, from the top, from the beginning, and all like that, are reasonable synonyms for the Greek word anothen, A-N-O-T-H-E-N, born again. And that's where the Greek word, that, that's what it means. That's what it is. You will recognize the word another in that root Greek word anothen, A-N-O-T-H-E-N. Strong's exhaustive concordance says this about that word, anothen, from above, by analogy, from the first, by implication, from above, again, from the beginning, the very first, or the top. Now, obviously, Jesus was not speaking of being born again physically, but speaking of a process which is new and very different from human physical birth. Understanding Christ's words is absolutely essential in order to comprehend the very purpose for human existence and therefore the purpose for the existence of the solar system, the earth, the universe, everything that you can know and see. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The expression born of water refers to baptism as well as to a function of the Holy Spirit in cleansing human minds. It is called the washing of the water by the word. Paul wrote and said this, Know you not, this is in Romans the 6th chapter, verses 3 and 4, that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so we also should walk, that means live, in newness of life. God's law claims our life when we break it. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But Christ has given his life, the life of the very Creator that we proved in John 1, in our stead. Instead of physically forfeiting our life when we turn to God in repentance and having to be put to death and accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, God commands us to be baptized. Look at Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What is sin? 1 John 3.4. Sin is the transgression of the law. Genesis 13.13. 13, the men of Sodom were sinners exceedingly before the Eternal. 
when Abimelech said to Abram, Why have you done this? You almost caused me to create a great sin. Here it was in the life of Abraham, generations, centuries before the giving of the law at Sinai. And the word sin is in the Old Testament of your Bible mentioned many times before Acts, or I should say before the uh, book of Exodus and the 20th chapter at the giving of the Decalogue, the formal giving of the Decalogue through Moses to Israel at Sinai. Sin is the transgression of the law. Now, where no law is, there is no transgression. Romans 4.15 where there isn't any stop sign, you can't run a stop sign. There has to be a law that is being broken. When the men of Sodom were sinners exceedingly before the eternal, they were breaking God's laws because God's laws had been revealed from ancient times to our first parents, to the great patriarchs of Enoch, to Noah, to all of the great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, long before Moses. And the Ten Commandments were known, delivered to, expounded, explained, by God who walked and talked with those people, and they understood God's laws. It says, Because Abraham kept my commandments, my statutes, and my laws, in Genesis 26.5, is why Abraham is called the father of the faithful. We repent of sin, and sin is the breaking of God's laws. Then when we are buried by baptism temporarily in water, it says, if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, in Romans the sixth chapter, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed, that means justified, rectified, brought back, redeemed from sin, Romans 6, 3 through 7. When Jesus told Nicodemus, we can't enter God's kingdom unless we are born of the water and of the Spirit, he was referring to baptism and receiving God's Holy Spirit, which is the life-giving divine nature of God, as it says in 2 Peter 1, verse 4, the very divine nature of God. The Greek word ganao means both begettal and birth, the entire process from conception to birth. So long as we are still human flesh, we can't inherit the kingdom of God. We must be completely changed, either by a resurrection from the dead or by an instantaneous change at the time of Christ's return. When that occurs, we'll no longer be flesh and blood. We will become literally composed of spirit, spirit life. Finally, we will be born into the divine sovereign family called Elohim. We will be co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We will be one of his lesser brothers or sisters, it says, We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Paul wrote, and I quote in 1 Corinthians 15:50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You and I cannot inherit it in our present form. Neither does corruption inherit in corruption. Yet Jesus Christ told Nicodemus, We must be born both of water and of the Spirit, or we can't enter into God's kingdom. He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. How can I further emphasize it? It's so obvious. You and I are flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And he said, marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it will, 
and you hear the sound thereof, but can't tell where it came from or where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. The wind is invisible. It blows here and there. You can feel it, hear it. You can fan your cheek, and you can feel it, but you can't see the wind. And Jesus Christ said when one is born of the Spirit, that he or she will become changed, completely different from human flesh. Christ put out his foot and stepped through solid stone. He walked through a solid stone wall where the disciples were there for fear of the Jews on one night and said, Behold, it is I, and made doubting Thomas come up and touch him and put his hand into that spear wound and the great wound in his wrist that made Thomas sink to his knees and say, My Lord and my God. When he finally believed, because those were unwilling witnesses, they didn't really believe it, they doubted it. But Christ was able to materialize and dematerialize because he lives now in the spirit world, the spiritual dimension that you and I are to enter. Today, millions believe they'll go to heaven when they die. And they don't know the truth about the pagan doctrine of the immortality of the soul. They don't know the truth about the state of the dead. They don't have the great, comforting, wondrous knowledge and truth of what is the state of their loved ones and their families and their friends and of people all around them that they know and they love but who have not been converted and have not really received Jesus Christ. And they are worried and scared that their loved ones and children and parents and kinfolk who died are roasting and blistering in hell. The truth of God is comforting, it's encouraging, it relieves all of that anxious anxiety and suffering and pain and tells you the truth. We human beings are not going to go to heaven. Believe it or not, heaven is coming down here to this earth. And there's no greater promise given to us in God's word than the promise of salvation, of eternal life with Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God. Christ said in Revelation 2.26, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. And there are so many nations, and so many people in our nation, so many communities, so many organizations, so many states and cities and townships and counties, that need to be ruled with God, not, not by any human despot, not by some angry human dictator, and not by you or by me in our current human form, because we still don't have the wisdom. We might feel we have enough compassion and mercy and forgiveness and understanding and patience, but we don't. But with the very mind of God and with the power of God and a member of the family of God, then ruling with a rod of iron is the way it's going to be done. Not only does God promise us eternal life, he promises positions of government with Jesus Christ in his coming kingdom. Christ's message was the good news of the coming kingdom of God. And the word gospel merely means good news. And millions don't know that it was news that Christ came with the advance announcement that God would intervene in human affairs and that the great tribulation would fall upon the nations that really are the modern-day descendants of Israel, Jacob, which are the United States and the British Commonwealth, whether we believe it or not. It doesn't matter whether we believe that. The Great Tribulation is going to inexorably draw the United States into it because it all is going to begin to erupt in the Middle East. God's Word says that He is going to stop all human activity. Read Revelation, the 6th and the 7th chapters, with great heavenly signs and wonders just short of the time when humankind would self-destruct. 
that through nuclear proliferation, nuclear weapons and chemical and biological weapons, and they are there, and they are affixed to those warheads, and they were there at the time of the war in the Gulf, that Jesus Christ said, except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, and Moffat adds, alive. And you and I know that there are several different methods by which all humanity could be exterminated from the face of this earth. God is going to save us from ourselves. Yes, the tribulation is coming, and that's Satan's wrath, and it's being brought upon us by the stupidity of many, many governments around this earth, and by the entire wrong and absolutely illegal and unconscionable economic system on this earth. The Great Tribulation is going to be wars, rumors of wars, droughts, famines, disease epidemics, earthquakes, all of these terrible things that Christ spoke of, and I've got a thick booklet on that subject, The Great Tribulation, is it about to begin, that you can have by simply writing or calling back and getting your free copy. I had written it just very recently. It goes into all the events in the Middle East, and you ought to get it. But then God is going to pour out His wrath, beginning, as you see in the book of Revelation, with chapter 8 and on through, and chapter 16 especially, and the kingdom of God is going to rule on this earth during the millennial reign of Christ. Continually, Jesus said he was coming again. He was coming back. The very first message to ever come back to this earth when Christ died and was ascending was, You men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up to heaven? The same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come, in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. And do you know that in the 21st and 22nd chapters of the book of Revelation, it actually says that the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in this earth, and that God himself shall be with them and be their God, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. This earth has been destined from countless years in the past, perhaps billions of years ago, to become the headquarters of the universe destined to become the site of the throne of God. Be sure to write for the booklet, Is There Life on Mars, or Did God Create Life on This Earth, and If So, Why? This is Garner. You have heard Garner Ted Armstrong. For additional materials offered in this presentation, call 903-825-2525.